0: Feel free to be seated. And as I um, come on up the grade four to sixes, if you're in here, feel free to make your way towards the back in the lobby. Um, and again, a, a happy Father's Day to those who are fathers um, and to those who um, struggle with fathers in various ways. There is, as Lucy said, a joy that God is a good father in heaven. Um, I have exciting news. We are finally back into our multi year journey in the book of Luke. We're excited? Okay, yeah. Everyone listen to like the last 57 sermons, just to recap. I know it's been a year since we last touched in it, but we're there? Okay, well, wonderful. Well, we are back in Luke, and I'm actually so excited. We are um, continuing this journey, and we're exactly halfway. We're at chapter 12 of a 24-chapter book, so 57 sermons behind us maybe 57 in front. We'll try to move quickly, but we'll just keep entering in and out of it over the coming years um, as we go into different seasons. And I'm really excited to journey through it, but I got to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous when I cracked it open and started looking at where we're going because we're right at the boiling point of Luke. The, Luke is kind of three acts, three cha- or three major sections, and act one is preparation. Jesus is born, John uh, proclaims that Jesus is coming, he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness, Um, he goes and gets disciples, he begins healing and teaching, the transfiguration happens, everything looks like it's going great, it's the build-up phase. And then, Act 2 comes, and Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. And he's beginning this long road section to the city that will ultimately reject him, to the city that he'll ultimately be crucified outside of. And on the road, he begins teaching, and he begins teaching about true discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And he often uses a group of people called the Pharisees as his foil. He calls them out for lifestyles of hypocrisy, and he teaches against them and their way of life again and again and again. And if you grew up in the church like me, um, you probably know that Pharisees are the bad guys. There's, like, the song, like, I don't, I don't want to be a Pharisee. Anyways, but, like, you know that they're the bad guys. They're the ones you don't want to be. But I think that for those of us who are um, privileged, for those of us who have wealth, For those of us who are religiously literate or have theology degrees or have grown up in the church and know about faith, for those of us who have moral convictions, the Pharisees in the Gospels are actually often our mirror. And that is a challenging thing to say. These people that we're told not to be, these people that Jesus challenges, we can find a lot of parallel and similarity between our lives and theirs. And Jesus keeps teaching against them keeps rebuking them and and challenging them and using them as an object lesson in his sermons. And this summer, as we go through the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus repeatedly teaching against and challenging the Pharisees. So here's the thing. This summer, we're going to be teaching about hypocrisy, greed, pride, wealth, worry, senselessness or senseless violence, peace, repentance, who is in and who is out, and the cost of following Jesus. And I have an invitation for you and a challenge. This summer, I invite you to be curious instead of defensive. To be curious instead of defensive. Because I think very quickly we want to move ourselves away from being like the Pharisees. We go into a defensive stance and we say, that's not me. But I encourage you to look at the log in your own eye before you point out the speck in someone else's. So curious instead of defensive this summer, because I think throughout these next couple chapters, Jesus is regularly going to point the finger at you and me, and he's going to challenge us in his teaching. And I, already in this first sermon, and as I'm preparing for the next sermon, I'm feeling very challenged in this. So curious instead of defensive. So with that, let me pray for soft hearts, for curiosity, and, um, and then I'll read our text one more time, okay? Father God, creator and sustainer, Father, um, we give thanks that you love us more than any father could, that you set the truest example of a good father, and you can heal our father wounds that many of us hold, that you are gracious to us. I pray for us as a church this summer as we explore the Jesus path, Jesus on the road, that we are curious about the teachings of Jesus, curious of the ways he may be challenging us, and curious of the ways that he may be inviting us deeper. Soften our hearts, Lord. Make us porous to the wonder of the gospel. Make us enamored and filled with joy by it, that we would experience your goodness and spread it out into this city. In your name, amen. So, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 12, verse 1 to 12. Otherwise, it will be on the text behind me, and I'm just going to read it one more time. Meanwhile... When a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. When you, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs." I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry how you will defend yourselves, or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Luke starts off with a very important word. Meanwhile a connection word to the previous story. And whenever you're reading through scripture, if you come across meanwhile or and then, you always want to do a quick in your head, like previously on the adventures of Jesus. Like go back, double check the previous chapter and remember what happened because they're saying... This story that's about to happen is connected to what just happened. So hold that in your head. And so the meanwhile that Jesus says is in chapter 11, like I said, Jesus is on the road and he starts preaching against the Pharisees. He goes and has dinner with a group of Pharisees. And then he announces five woes, five wrongdoings, five ways that this group of people are living wrong. And if you're not sure who the Pharisees are, N.T. Wright describes them so well. He says the Pharisees were a Jewish religious political pressure group trying to push for the purity of Israel, a pressure group. And so Jesus is going against them. And he says things like you um, clean only the outside of the cup while you leave the inside filthy. You neglect justice and the love of God. You long to be seen as respectful and to be respected. You are burdening those around you with your teachings, and you have taken the key of knowledge from those that are seeking to learn. And so Jesus goes against them pretty hard in that chapter, and it ends in verse 54 with Luke saying that the Pharisees were waiting to catch him in what he might say. They were looking to tear Jesus down. He'd made an enemy of them, and they were out for blood and looking for a way to destroy him. Meanwhile, so that's what just happened. And then the meanwhile, what's going on? Well, as Luke 12 starts, this crowd, this massive crowd of thousands is growing around Jesus, so much so that they're pushing against one another, trampling over one another. And if you ever want a really good study, word study in the gospel, look at the word crowd Every time it's used, something interesting is going on because they're catching on to an energy. uh, They're catching on to a movement around them. And this crowd is growing in and pushing in. This celebrity status has grown for Jesus and his disciples. And it looks like it's a perfect moment. Jesus is gonna turn to the crowd and teach them. And then he turns his back to the crowd and he looks to his disciples. And he teaches his disciples instead of the crowd. And the crowd might be listening in but this is directed at those closest following Jesus. And in this chapter or this story, Jesus ends up giving five instructions or five imperatives, five do's and don'ts to his followers. And today I want to look at those five. And they are, be on guard, do not be afraid, fear him, do not be afraid, do not worry. And these are very beautiful and very exciting imperatives that Jesus gives. So, Let's start with the very first one. At verse one, Jesus says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And I love, Luke is so generous to, his, to the disciples of Jesus, where Matthew and Mark like point out kind of the foolishness of Jesus. And in Matthew, when this same line is said, the disciples respond and say, is this because we didn't bring any bread? And they just don't get that Jesus is talking about a metaphor of yeast. But for those of us, post-pandemic, we've actually finally learned what yeast does, right? We all were baking sourdoughs and making focaccia, and we learned like a teaspoon to three teaspoons in a, in a loaf of bread works its way and brings it to life. It begins bubbling and rising. We, we finally know how powerful yeast is of just a little bit. And Jesus warns against the yeast— of the Pharisees, and he calls it hypocrisy. And yeast is their teachings, their lifestyle. And so he's saying, be careful, because just a little bit of their teaching, just a little bit of their lifestyle, will affect the entire loaf of bread. Just a little bit will contaminate everything. And he goes on to say that what has been said in the dark, what is said in whispered rooms, will come out as Will be shown from the rooftops this hypocrisy this double standard way of life that the pharisees are living in is going to be revealed to everyone and especially to God in what will happen and I want to acknowledge something Because I can't not point out the irony of preaching about hypocrisy in the church in North America and this is embarrassing to many of us in the church, right? Because if you go to anyone outside of the church and you ask, what don't you like about Christians? Well, they'll probably say, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And I mean, if you go to anyone in the church and you ask, what don't you like about Christians? We'll probably say, well, there's a lot of hypocrites. And over the past 10 years in churches across North America, there has been a mighty reckoning against churches and pastors and leaders who have been revealed to be hypocrites. I don't need to say their names. We hear them on the radio, we hear them in podcasts and in books and sermons all the time. The church is filled with them. The yeast has made its way into the dough. There are people that taught so much about sexual purity and sexual ethics and did something completely opposite of that. There are people that preached about anger and then lived it out with anger and vitriol in their own life in churches. And it has damaged and hurt many of us. So I just want to acknowledge right off the bat, Jesus' warning has most likely fallen on deaf ears across the church, across the world, mine included. We as a church corporately and across the world have made secondary and tertiary things the main things. We've made so many extra rules for the church. We talk more about sexual purity and sexual ethics than we do about God's love and forgiveness and grace. We talk more about how to dress the right way than the poor and marginalized. And I say that having just gone to a wonderful ordination service last week with a lot of robes. And they're good, they're wonderful, they're signs, but we put too much focus in the wrong direction. So many Christians focus on who is in and who is out at the cost of their own soul. And if I were to make a diagnosis of the church, I would say the yeast is in the dough. And the thing is, once the yeast is in, You can't separate it. It's it's there. It's dangerous. It's part of it. And so Jesus puts this warning, and it should be a stark warning, a finger pointed at us. Be on guard. That's a heavy way to start. (laughs) Because we see it. It's there. Be on guard. So how do we be on guard? How do we avoid the yeast of the Pharisees, this hypocrisy? Well, it comes out in Jesus' second imperative. He says, do not be afraid about those who will kill the body. And that seems odd, and that seems disconnected, but, but it answers for us an important question. Why did the Pharisees become the Pharisees, or how did the Pharisees become filled with such hypocrisy? To understand this, let's talk about apples. Does anyone like red delicious apples? really? Okay, well, I'm about to ruin red delicious apples. Sorry, Randall, because they are the worst apple. Like, sure, they're like, at one point, the most sold apple in North America, but awful. So in, in 1872, is when Red Delicious began to be coming on the scene. They were originally from Peru, and then they were brought into North America, and it began to be grown more and more. And originally, Red Delicious was not known as Red Delicious because in 1892, there was a contest run by Stark Nurseries for the new great North American apple to replace, I forget what the other one was, but to replace an apple, and the the Red Delicious won. And the Red Delicious was originally known as a round, blushed yellow fruit of surpassing sweetness. Blushed yellow fruit. Not red delicious yet, right? So those apples were originally called stark delicious. And then they began to be known, and then they became called golden delicious. And you can still get a golden delicious variety. But, I know, going crazy here. The, yellow, the golden delicious began to be sold so heavily, and they began to be sold in supermarkets, and grocery stores, and around the world. And pressure was put on the commercial growers to sell more and more and more of these delicious apples. And so the delicious apples became a victim of their own fame, and what commercial growers began doing was crossbreeding them with more red delicious or red varieties. They favored thicker skin and a beautiful exterior, and that's the thing. If you look at a red delicious, like, they're gorgeous. But this select breeding process bred out the yellow fleshing on the outside in favor of a red skin, which sacrificed flavor because the yellow skin chromosomes were... The flavor in the apple. They're the same part. And so today, you go into the grocery store, you get an apple, it looks great, you take a bite, it's awful. Sorry, Randall. <laughs> it's it, like terrible texture, awful flavor, skin that gets stuck in your teeth. They sacrifice what was once the greatest apple in North America to make it look good, to make it sell. And the best part was they did it for shelf life. They wanted it to be able to sit in the grocery store for longer or travel farther distances, and they just got this awful red, not delicious apple. What? Sorry. <laughs> Inside was a terrible fruit, but outside was this beautiful thing. And I would say the Pharisees were much the same. They started off with good intentions. They wanted Israel to be holy. They wanted to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And so they followed the law to the letter. And they thought, in order to follow the law to the letter, we need to add more rules and more rules. And make it harder and harder to break these rules. And suddenly, the secondary and tertiary things became the main thing the color and shelf life came to be the thing they were focusing on. Things like sexual purity, correct washing of hands, militant Sabbath practices, exclusion of Gentiles, they became the thing that the Pharisees focused on. At the exclusion of the true good, and suddenly the most important thing was not the truest important thing. The outside became the focus. At the sacrifice of the inside. And the Pharisees, they wanted the crowds to follow them. They feared not being in control. And this is why it's important to note Jesus' direction with his warning. It's to the disciples. Their popularity is rapidly expanding. There is a crowd of thousands wanting to hear from them. And the danger is that they will become like the Pharisees. They'll focus on the other things, the exterior instead of the heart, the good appearance and a long shelf life at the sacrifice of the inside. I want to pause for a moment, because I think for many of us, that is probably an odd reading of Jesus's warning of don't be afraid of those who'll kill the body. Because normally when we read that, we read it about persecution. And I think it is, because in about five years, those disciples that hear these words are going to be persecuted. They're going to be dragged before the court. They are going to be threatened and killed by the Roman Empire. But as a church today, we are very rarely persecuted. We don't fear persecution and rejection like those disciples did in the first century. Many Christians around the world do, but here in North America, we don't. And instead, in places around the world, the church looks more like the Pharisees than it does the than the disciples, it focuses on the exterior and it does it for the same reason that the Pharisees did. Remember, they were a Jewish political pressure group seeking the purity of their nation. Does that sound similar to the church in Canada, to the church in the United States, to the church in UK, to the church in the Middle Ages? A political pressure group seeking purity. And why do they do it? Well, here's the thing. The church is afraid that other people and other groups could take over instead of them. They're afraid that their access to to power could be killed. They fear the crowds around them. They fear those who can kill the body. They're afraid of them, and they act in response to it, so they add this exterior on. One commentator, he puts it this way, and I love it. He says, The four great temptations of this life, power, wealth, fame, and pleasure, they provide us with what tend to be our greatest fears. If we have any of these four in great abundance, if we get used to them, see them as necessity, and derive our worth and meaning from them, then the fear of losing them can drive us to do desperate things. Desperate things. And the desperate thing is that we let the yeast into the dough, we let hypocrisy become part of our nature. The church, myself included, has often become hypocrites that live an exterior life to win over the crowds, at the cost of the inside many times. So Jesus gives these two first imperatives and it presents us with a great problem, a great challenge. But, being a great teacher, he provides an antidote for the contaminant. In verse 5, Jesus goes to his third imperative and he says this, But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, fear him. And that sounds like a frightening statement. I don't know about you. It reminds me of a certain parent saying, I'll give you something to cry about. Father's Day. Um, <laughs> I love you, Dad. Um, but we, it's this suddenly fearful statement after that. And for many of us, we we can wrestle with what this means because it doesn't give immediate clarity. And I think some people then jump to, to Satan or the devil and we think, well, Satan or the devil is the one who rules hell. That is very bad theology. That is not Christian theology. That is Roman and Greek theology, much like Hades in the wonderful Disney um, Uh, Hercules who rules over the underworld and all the souls that are stuck there but that is not Christian theology the one who has authority over your soul is God and so this statement then actually becomes once again even scarier once again fear inducing Jesus says fear God don't be afraid of those who kill the body fear God who is the author of your soul And this challenges our modern sensibilities. We want to be autonomous. We want to have independence. We want to have personal power. We don't like the idea of God ruling over us. But Jesus is saying, no, remember, God is more powerful than a thousand sons. God is the one who wrote and created everything. You are under God. So God says, or Jesus says, fear God, going back to Hebraic wisdom. And in fact, I went to Rachel this week to say, like, can you define fear God for me as an Old Testament scholar? And she said, oh, we're actually learning this in kids' church right now. And in kid- and I just, and it led to a very funny moment where I said, oh, is there like a Hebrew concept of like serendipity and chance? And she said, no, it's divine authority. It is God's providence. And I was like, wow, that was foolish of me. But in kids' church right now, they're studying Proverbs 9, verse 10 to 11, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And what the kids are learning right now and over, the next, or and over the summer is they are learning that fear has two sides. First is what typically comes to mind, being afraid, whether it's of spiders or the dark or someone jumping up against your car window and scaring you. There's fear-inducing moments, right? But the other side of fear is wonder. And I bring up being scared because Amelia scared me so much in my car that I screamed. But the other side of fear is Wonder and awe at how great something is. And you can feel both of those emotions at the same time. Think of standing at the edge of a massive cliff. You look down, you see like a city rolled out below you, and you're like, wow, it's so small, it's tiny, I'm huge for this moment, and then you look down and go, wow, I would fall for a long time. (laughs) Fear I would fall, but wonder at how infinitesimally small you are versus the massive world. The world below me is an ant, but then you're like, but I am an ant, and I could fall forever. So fear, when Jesus says fear God, he literally means be afraid, but also be in wonder of how great and wonderful and powerful and huge God is. Fear God is Jesus's solution and antidote for hypocrisy, because he sees into the hidden places. But he follows it up with the vital Christian belief. And he says in verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet one of them is not forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than than many sparrows. Fear God, be in awe, be in wonder, but don't fear him because he knows and loves you. See, the problem with hypocrisy is that it puts on a show for other people. It puts on a false self, a mask. It pretends to be something else to get people's favor. And we often try to do this for God. But he sees into the secret and the hidden places. And so the antidote for hypocrisy is a true vision of God and ourselves. One that sees him with total and complete awe, that can be afraid of how wonderful and powerful he is, and yet knows he is love. As we talked about two weeks ago on Trinity Sunday, at the core, at the very center of God, is eternal love. Sometimes I think of God like Michael Scott. In the first season of Michael Scott, he has the greatest quote you can put it up. Would I rather be feared or loved? Easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me, except, and I, I've said this so many times, this is like my dream as a boss. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. But God flips it on its head. He says, would I rather be feared or loved? Both. I would rather, be pe- I would rather people fear how much I love them. That's what Jesus is getting at. I would rather be afraid of how much, I love you. You be afraid of how much I love you. That's the antidote. That's the antidote to hypocrisy right there. Seeing God love us even though he doesn't need to and allows us to love us even with the mess we are. So with this right view of God, we can begin to move away from hypocrisy. But there's an elephant in the passage before I get to the final imperative. And the final imperative is important, but I think there's a stumbling block that many of us will get to in this passage, and maybe the only reason we've ever heard this passage before. In verse 10, Jesus says this Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever I hear this passage read, it feels like the the brakes squeal at that moment. It's like a moment of whiplash. You're trying to see what just happened, but it keeps on going. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And as a culture, I think this frustrates us. Because we like the idea of a forgiving God, and we don't want God to not be forgiven. But as a culture, we forget how unforgiving we actually are. Cancel culture is, is all about a list of unforgivable sins. And we probably hold a list of unforgivable sins against us. But we don't want God to be like that. We don't want God to be like us, so we feel this tension, this frustration. What does it mean that he can not forgive a sin? But it should be noted that right before this, Jesus says, all sins against the Son will be forgiven. Radical forgiveness. But this last one, there's something about blaspheming the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven. So what is that? Well, as as much as I can understand is blaspheming the Holy Spirit is essentially the ultimate form of hypocrisy. When a person is convicted by by the Holy Spirit of their sins, when we are shown the great cost of our forgiveness through the work of Jesus, and say, I don't need that, or I don't want it, or it's not enough. And we begin to live the lies of our own hypocrisy, We think, if I do enough, I can earn forgiveness. If I'm better, then I can earn forgiveness. Or maybe I need to do all this stuff to get it. But blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the ultimate inability to repent. It is to believe the lies so much that we cannot even accept forgiveness. Tim Keller, puts it, way better than I ever can. He says this, if we resist the work of the Holy Spirit, showing us where we're wrong and leading us to repentance, it is possible for us to deny God and put ourselves outside of his power of forgiveness. And that's challenging and frustrating, but it comes from a radical belief that God lets us choose. We can choose to not Experience forgiveness. We can choose to not repent. We can choose to live in our hypocrisy. It's a choice. All of us have it. And later on in the road to Jerusalem, there's going to be the story of the prodigal son, and it ends with the older brother outside of the house, outside of the party, unwilling to come in. And the question is, will you stay there? That's the picture of blaspheming the Holy Spirit outside the party and unwilling to come in and experience the wonder that is God's love given through Jesus. So the key to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, or to not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is to be on guard against hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It is to rightly fear God and realize that we don't need to be afraid of him. Only then can we truly live a true repentant life. Only then can we come to him knowing he will forgive us. And that will lead us to a repentant life. And it will lead us away from blaspheme in the Holy Spirit. And then there's the final imperative. Simple and beautiful. I don't need to say much about it. It says this. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And essentially it's this. When you are called before the courts, before friends, before family, before all those around you, don't be a hypocrite. Don't make yourself look good or proper or better than you are. Lean on the God of the universe who loves you and he will give you the strength and words to say. And this line, it actually cuts all the way back to Moses going before Pharaoh. And he says, what will I say? say?" It says, don't be afraid. I will give you the words to speak. And that is very hard for me as someone who really likes preaching, who likes perfecting my words. And yet as Christians, we're called, when people have an account of our faith, lean on God. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. You don't need to be afraid of him. Five instructions. Five imperatives that Jesus gives to his disciples on the road and through them gives to us as well. Be on guard against hypocrisy. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't fear the crowds. Don't live for the crowds. Fear God, the creator of the universe. Don't be afraid of God because he loves you. And don't worry because the Holy Spirit will teach you and speak through you. So often the Christian life becomes about the crowd. We are quick to live in response to the people around us and it will lead us to hypocrisy again and again. But Jesus argues for us to live a completely different life. One that is truly enamored with his limitless grace that's revealed on the cross. And when we see how much God loves us, we can stop worrying and be led by the Holy Spirit. And that is makes us look a lot more like Jesus, whose image we were created in, instead of any fake work we can do on our own. So St. Peter's, my hope for our church is that we are on guard against the yeast of the hypocrisy, or the yeast of hypocrisy, that we don't make extra rules for following Jesus, but instead we live in light of the incredible goodness of God without any fear except the fear of how much God loves us. And that we enjoy that with gladness and wonder, and we spread that goodness and love to the world around us, knowing that we may be rejected for it, but that the Spirit will speak through us. So I'm going to pray, and I'll invite the band up to lead us in a a brief time of reflection.